Hello, and welcome to another edition of Storytelling on Orchard Street. I'm your host, Pete Salamita. We are in the broadcast studios, or the podcast studios, I should say. That's old school broadcast. Uh, of P&T Knitwear, bookstore uh, 180 Orchard Street. With me is the fantastic Mr. Philip Giambri, a.k.a. the Ancient Mariner, who left home at 18 and never looked back. He's seen and done what others dream of or fear. That's how he's lived, and that's how he writes. Welcome, Philip. Thank you. Thank you, Pete. Thank you, Jill. Nice to be here. I'm oh, sorry. We're uh, good. Your, your first words or two were cut off. That's my fault. So, um, your book? Yes. What, what? Good boy, nice bad boy, a better man. It's a memoir. I, I have one critique. Yes. If, if you can take it. Are you man enough to take critique? <laughs> it's not long enough. I was married for 42 years. <laughs> <laughs> Probably got a lot of critique that way. Thank you. I, 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 I'm like, I want to know more about the different aspects of your life. You needed to do this to be twice as long. Well, a lot of the stories were told in my first two books and my poetry book. Ah. So I thought people might want to know who I was before I came to New York and Got my, my background. So that's, right. yeah, that's why a lot of the stories end right when I meet my wife. <laughs> Got it. Which is a, an incredible story. There's so many great stories in this book. I want to go backwards first to this. Because uh, you, you said you, in your description that you wrote of yourself, you mentioned A.K. the Ancient Mariner, right? Uh, and uh, this is an anthology you put out with um, uh, P- uh, Pink Trees Press, which is also the other books here. These two books, right? I don't know yes. all of them. Yeah. And uh, it's uh, it's a great testament to a lot of work you did. Um, so you did um, features uh, for years, right? I edited, I curated a show uh, reading series at uh, Three of Cups Lounge for five years and uh, we had four features every every month and an open mic uh, for five dollars covered the cost of the use of the room and over the period of five years we had uh, over 200 features and uh, that's a lot yeah that's impressive and 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 a lot of them are in this book well uh, when when the series ended when the bar closed after five years almost to the day and uh, Linda Kleinbaum who was Pinkery's press editor and Anthony Murphy. And she was also on my uh, one of my early episodes. So right. Yeah, she's fantastic, uh, too. And <laughs> Anthony Murphy, who was my associate producer for my show, said, uh, we should do an anthology. And I said, you guys have no idea how much work that is. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so they did it, and it took them two and a half years. Uh, I mean, I think it's a treasure. <laughs> I mean, first of all, it's a... You know, it's not easy to do what you did with the read-ins and the open mics. It's hard to organize that. And what people should know is I think you did something that not everybody that does these things do, is that you went out in the city and went to uh, other uh, places, other open mics, to uh, recruit some of the uh, the poets. That's pretty impressive. What, what I wanted to do was um, avoid all the mistakes that people who curated shows made that made me unhappy when I was a open mic reader or a feature. Uh, And I was determined to respect the people who come to the show. And it was never about me. I never read it my show. Right. Uh, And the show always started on time. And the people who were features were near the beginning of the show. And everyone who ever came to the show was videotaped 
and I edited it and put titles on it and put them on YouTube. There's over 2,000 videos wow. on YouTube for my show. It's a lot of work. Really you're you're an archi archivi archivist. <laughs> archivist? <laughs> well, I, fe I felt like I was capturing a bit of downtown history. Yeah, you did. These are really talented people. Right. Yeah. And I, I've seen, um, so yeah. I just started doing these open mics uh, this uh, beginning of uh, the summer. And I've met a lot of people in the book. And it's, it's, <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, and it's a testament to you and your life and to all these people, you know, to have this book. Well. Linda and Anthony Murphy did the, the bulk of the work. Right. I, I designed the cover and did the layout for the book, but they did all the contacting the seniors, the, the people, and uh, asking them to submit three poems and then picking the poem that they wanted in the book and then gathering all of the stuff together and uh, alphabetizing them and getting bios and everybody does it. It's a yeah. tremendous it's amount a, of work. Sure. Yeah. And, and by the way, Linda's a great person to have on your side. I mean, <laughs> yes. she's a hard worker. She does great <coughs> events herself um, and uh, works. I'll, I'll tell you a little story about that. My first book was called Confessions of a Repeat Offender. It's basically a, a collection of uh, stories about my life that I've been telling in bars and open mics and readings for 10 years or more. And uh, people kept saying, you should write that down. You know, those stories are interesting. So I finally did. And I had never published a book before, so I paid a friend of mine who writes mystery novels uh, to edit it for me, and uh, I wasn't happy with what he did. And then two other people edited it, and what had happened, I had deliberately included, because I'm cynical, I don't trust editors, I had deliberately included pieces that I felt weren't my best material, huh. and I put them in the book, hoping that a good editor would say, you know, we don't want that in the book, right, it doesn't right. belong there. Sure. And I went through four different editors, and none of them said a word. They corrected punctuation and right. apostrophes and, you know, sentence structure. And then uh, somebody suggested Linda. They uh -huh. said, Linda's, you know, she's got a master's degree in creative writing. Why don't you get mm -hmm. her to look at it? So <coughs> So she had been coming to my show. I asked her to look at it, and the first thing she did was said, I think maybe you should take a few of these stories. Wow, out that's awesome. That and was a great test. And they were exactly yeah. the pieces that I awesome. put in. Awesome. Oh, that's incredible. <laughs> then you knew right there. That was my editor. Right. And uh, you've uh, developed a, a great um, <coughs> working relationship with her. Yeah, we've been partnering. Uh, when I you know, retired from doing curating my show, Linda uh, was looking for something to do, and I was going to readings at a place called Black and White Bar, Fahrenheit Open Mic, and mm -hmm. they had been going for 22 years. That's a long and time. And they kept turning over hosts and turning over hosts because they would get married, they would leave, they'd move, they have sure. kids. And the manager of the bar, Richard, who I've known for years, who's also a writer, said, why don't you take the show over? I said, I can't, I'm tired from doing this. So I asked Linda, I said, do you think you would want to take this over? She said, I can't do it by myself. So she drafted Jennifer Juneau, right. and the two of them started Fahrenheit Open Mic over there, and we drafted a lot of the people from my show were the mm -hmm. first people we invited, right. and the people that Linda had been meeting along the way, and it was very successful. Right. So then she said, this is good. Why don't we do park shows in the summertime? Right. You know? So we did that, and then uh, the pandemic hit, and she was doing Zooms, which I don't like Zooms. Yeah, so I'm not crazy about it either. So I like their audience feel. Linda did that. Zooms and built up a large audience doing Zooms. Ah, so yeah, she's difficult to do. Yeah. yeah. So she's she picked up the and ran with the ball long after I should have been right. doing it too. So we're going to get to your book. <coughs> That'll be the main focus of the interview. because And there's a lot to talk about in there. But you want to... Is there anything else you want to talk about the other books that you have well, here? Like I said, the Confessions of Repeat Offender is a collection of stories that I told for years in bars and joints. And then that was followed by um, 
Yeah, hold, hold it up to the to the camera. <laughs> there we go. Yep. Perfect. All right. All the books are available on Amazon. Uh, so the next adventure was The Amorous Adventures of Blondie and Boho, Two East Village Dive Bar Coyotes. And that originated at a, a place called Bar 82 on 2nd okay. Avenue, right. which mm -hmm. uh, we used to do shows in the back room and stuff. It was all neighborhood people, very creative people. And uh, when the bar closed, everyone in the neighborhood who had been going there daily for di every kind of show you could imagine, were, we were heartbroken. And uh, I started thinking about 52 years living on St. Mark's Place, and I said, I think our history is going to be forgotten here. I, I need to tell the story of what, right. hap what happened in this neighborhood since I moved and here. And that's a long time to be in one place and be in the East Village. I've lived on the same street for 52 crazy, years, St. Mark's it's Place. crazy. <laughs> So uh, basically, the, the characters of Blondie and Boho represent all of the people, the artists, the writers, the crazy people, the mishaps that, you know, that I run into. And Blondie's story starts so I could tell the story of where the Lower East Side came before I came there, which was a Polish-Ukrainian neighborhood pri primarily. Mm -hmm. And so I created a fictional story for Blondie of hanging out at a bar, which was a Polish bar that I was a regular at years ago. So the stories, the way I described the bar and everything, was ev all the stories are accurately based on truthful information, but fictionalized. Right. So it covers 50 years through punk rock, through hippie times, through you know everybody that came on St. Mark's Place at one time or another comes back 20 years later. Kind of describe what St. Mark's Place is like for people who don't know New York City, and how much has it changed? I call it the Boulevard of Broken Dreams. That's great. <laughs> right. It kind of <laughs> is, right? My, my neighbor, Ada Calhoun, who I've known since before she was born, her parents were a friend of mine, has lived on St. Mark's Place, and she published a book several years ago called St. Mark's is Dead, and it covered the history of our street from when the Indians were there up into the present. And wow. the thing that everybody says about St. Mark's Place is if you went there when you were in college and you hung out and got drunk or did drugs or had sex or whatever you did, 30 years later when you're living up in Westchester and you come back down and with your wife for a night out and you know, you're 30 pounds heavier than you were in college <laughs> and you're looking around and you say, who are these people? This place, St. Mark's is dead now, man. It used to right. be so, so, everybody says that. Right. Every, right. And that's the whole point of it. The generations that come change it, but it's always good. Right. I right. love it. Okay, cool. <laughs> God, I can imagine all the things you've seen over your lifetime. And there's, um, and then and you have the book uh, uh, <coughs> that you wrote during the pandemic. Pem this is called uh, Poems from an Unending Pandemic. Um, I was basically, through most of my life, a storyteller. And when the pandemic hit, uh, I was trapped in my house, like everyone else, and the city shut down, and I had no stories to tell anymore. There was nowhere to go and no place to talk to, no one to talk about. And my muse started visiting me at 5 o'clock in the morning and dictating things to me that seemed like poems, which I had never written before. And uh, I started writing them down and posting them on Facebook, and I started getting positive re responses. And... After a year, I said, boy, I have a lot of poems here. Maybe right. I should make a book. Right. And I put them in a book, and it was so depressing. <laughs> and I, and since well, I, it was a depressing time, let's be real. Since I never really wrote poetry, I, you know, um, Linda Kleinbub is a, a real poet. She knows form and style mm -hmm. and how to put words together. I never did. You know, I just wrote these things down because the muse dictated them. Right. So I kind of put it on a shelf for a year. And then I submitted uh, 
one of the poems, or several of the poems, to the Nassau County Poet Laureate Society Poetry Contest last okay. year. Right. And I got honorable mention. Awesome. And then this year I, su I supported it. I'm sorry. I submitted another poem, and I won the contest, actually. That's great. A rookie poet. Wow, so, awesome. So I, so I said, Lin Linda Kleinbaugh, maybe we should you know, hustle this book a little bit. Right. You know, it might not be as bad sure. as I thought it was. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, well, there's a lot to talk about generated from this book, um, but you want to read something? Uh, what, what I thought I'd do is I'd, I'd read a little piece from each of the books starting with that. That'd be that great. Would that awesome. be all right? Yeah. All right. This, this first piece is from uh, Confessions of a Repeat Offender. It's called A Hard Rain on First Avenue After Midnight. A broke-down old drunk man stumbling down First Avenue in the rain, trying hard not to slide away, held up mostly by his cane. With his good arm, he's supporting a girl with a swelled-up foot that hurts, slow steps moving forward and jerking and staggering back in spurts. He's hanging on tight, teeth clenched, fighting to hold back screams of pain. She hoists a broke umbrella, struggling for cover from the rain. Two poor lost souls, knowing they can't do it on their own, stumbling down First Avenue together, trying hard to find a way back home. Just a broke-down old drunk man and a pretty young thing in pain, wandering through purgatory in this godforsaken rain. Great. That's the, that's the only thing I ever wrote that rhymes. I don't know why. <laughs> I didn't plan it that way. Is it necessary? I mean, I don't think it's necessary. Like uh, my style of writing, and maybe it's similar to yours in some ways. I I, I just view it, view what I do as story poems. They're just slices yeah, of life. Exactly. You know. Exactly. That's why I identify with you immediately when I. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Should I read another? Yeah. Okay. Th this is from the Amorous Adventures of Blondie and Boho, and it's called Smoke and Mirrors. Uh, this is when Blondie and Boho are first starting their relationship, and. Everybody's kind of dancing to figure out if the other person really cares about them, likes them. Every, nobody wants to make the big move to say, I love you or something right, like right. that. Nobody wants to be the first one. So it's called smoke and mirrors. They're not real. They seem to exist for each other only as smoke and mirrors. Hard to grasp, hard to hold on to, hard to see clearly, hard to fathom if the other's really there. Blind lovers reach through smoke, grope for substance, for honest, for real, for something to cling to. Truth is smoke, remains elusive, unknown, slips through fingers. Mirror reflects back a lone image, even as they struggle to be two. To hold tight, not slip away, not let go, vanish from the other. Smoke and mirrors hold no substance, yet they lie together on a bed of dreams, hoping against hope that mirrors can be windows, that fresh air dissolves smoke, will reveal two lovers embracing. For a moment, happiness seems real. For this moment, they're not smoke and mirrors. All right. Cool. I love it. Sorry, I keep going? Or you um, well, what's <coughs> the next one from? This is the poem that uh, won this year's Nassau County Poet Laureate Contest. Okay, cool. So read that, and then we'll talk uh, about the book, and then you'll read something from the book. This is called Freedom. A carriage horse escapes, runs free on 11th Avenue, heads downtown trotting elegantly, effortlessly dodging traffic, head held high, prancing, seemingly savoring the free moment. At 22nd Street, he's recaptured, returned to the stable, restrained, locked down. My chest tightens. He's me. He's us. He lived for just a moment the freedom that was our dream, that free spirit buried deep inside, yearning to break out and run away. I'm hurt, disappointed, and sad. 
Life captured me, captured all of us, I guess, puts us in bridles and blinders, trains us to follow, not lead. This suit, this tie, this fake smile, the worried agreement, the false submission, the sellout signature we put on email, the acquiescence we've allowed, the voice of protest we swallowed the moment we sold out. He's safely stable again, tethered, readjusted, stall secured. Will he remember that moment of freedom? Will it comfort him? Or has he finally been broken too? That's awesome. I can see why that, that uh, won an award. What, what um, have led to that? Or During the pandemic, I was watching Channel One News and a carriage horse was running down the Okay. Eighth Avenue. Right. He, he right. actually escaped it. And I saw it. It was just like he seemed so thrilled and excited and right. happy. And he was proud. He was marching down the street. It was beautiful. And then all of a sudden, at 23rd Street, they got him. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it hurt. That's a, some story. So so you do that, too, because I, I get my uh, stories from different places. Yeah. Sometimes it can be from a documentary I'm watching or from, like, a news story. Or, you know. Do you find yourself, like, moving around? you come up with an idea and I just I actually am very lazy I just sit around and wait for the muse she wakes uh -huh. me up at five o'clock in the morning and the story's already there and I'm the stenographer I type it out and and then I start on an uh, actual typewriter no oh, okay <laughs> on my computer <laughs> okay and I uh, I stare at it for a couple of days and I say wow I wrote that huh right and then I uh, look at it and eventually after a couple of weeks I'll start editing it when I can look at it objectively right that's pretty much, I'd, yeah, I can't go to writing classes. I've never had any writing training. Um, I can't write on demand. If I go to a class and they say, you know, here's a theme, write, a pic uh, write something, I can't do that. I don't know if I could either. And, um, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure. It's funny because I was talking to Jill about that. Jill's in the studio with, with us. Uh, it's my wife. She's helping to make sure I don't mess up the technology. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I was talking about that because I went to, I'm not going to mention what it was, but I went to an uh, open mic in a different venue than I've been going. I'm trying to get out and be in front of or with different people. And I was wondering if it was my place because uh, it was it was not rigid, but it was it was um, a place where they you know, they have classes. And uh, I was thinking, do I want to take a class? You know, I have my style and I write for myself in, in a lot of ways. Exactly. I understand that. Yeah. When I was first starting out with open mics, uh, uh, you know, writers basically, I think, are shy people. They're not performers by birth. And uh, when I started going to open mics, um, I deliberately chose places where academics went, where I knew they didn't like my work or they wouldn't understand my work so that I could overcome stage fright. I figured if, huh. I, could, if I could read in front of these people, right. I could do it anywhere. Well, that's, you know. that's curious. That's something. So that's, yeah. a, that's how I started. Juju Mukto Tea Lounge. Okay. <laughs> and did they, did, did they get you at some point? Only one person, George Wallace. I don't know if you know who he is. He's a pretty well-known author and right. poet. Uh -huh. uh, uh, George Wallace uh, came up to me the first time I went there, and he said, I like what you're writing. He said, please come back again. Cool. And then uh, about four months after that, he published that uh, piece about hard rain on First Avenue in the uh, Walt Whitman newspaper that he puts out. All right, so cool. Yeah, right. And I'm still friends with George. We right. I just wrote a blurb for his new book. Okay, <laughs> awesome. So um, let's, let's get to your book. Good All boy, right. bad boy, a better man, a cautionary tale. Um, so you grew up in South Philly. Uh, you were born, was it 41 or? Yep. Yep. 
August of 41. Right. Yeah. So it seems like um, at least aspects of that, your childhood were really vivid, uh, the, the surroundings and what it looked like and be living there in South Philly. And I didn't know that I remembered all that stuff until, like I said, the news comes at five o'clock in the morning. Right. I, w I had intended to write another poetry book and right. these stories started coming out and I remember being two years old in a high chair with and my grandfather and like, wow, where did that come? I had no memory right. of that at all. Right. And then I verified that with my sister. She said, yeah, he used to come over and feed us at lunchtime wow. when mom was working. Right. And then the stories just started rolling out and rolling out and I asked Linda Kleinbaum, I said, would you be willing to publish this stuff? It's like not what I normally do or not what you do. And she says, well, it's kind of nostalgic, you know, and it's historic for people who aren't your age. And, you know, you grew up when there were horse wagons for coal for uh, milk deliveries for everything. So, yeah, so I gave it a shot. Yeah, I mean, there was a, a lot in, in your, especially your early history that, you know, people today might not be able to identify with, but make great for great stories. <laughs> um, one of them is, um, talk about... Um, uh, obviously, you had vivid memories of um, your experience with polio. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the thing I remember the most about polio was the pain of the uh, shot they gave me in my spine. A spinal tap mm -hmm. is a terrible, terrible thing for a four-year-old kid. But, uh, yeah, I was at my uh, grandmother's house in Jersey where I spent every summer because my parents worked, and she was like her summer camp at her house. And it was very rural, and we used to stay outside and play in my grandmother's wash tub and play under the hose in the summertime like you know typical kids do and uh, one morning I woke up and uh, I fell down when I got out of bed and uh, I thought my leg was asleep so I started slapping it and trying to wake it up and I stood up again and fell down again and then I was in a hospital and were you were you terrified or what, what, what did you make oh, yeah, you yeah. I started crying yeah right. yeah but at the same time every summer there were epidemics of polio so right. you know they knew pretty much quickly what it was okay because, because all the kids were getting did it. your family have an idea that's what it was before they took you to the hospital or I they just took you to the hospital and that's that I don't remember the right. after yeah. falling down the next thing I remember is being in that dark room and getting a spinal tap oh my god yeah and then I remember being in the in the polio ward. They, they put us in uh, quarantine for three months. So you were separated from your family for three months. Yeah. And, and you how you were how old? Four years old. My God, that's terrifying. <laughs> I can't <laughs> imagine. <laughs> it was pretty pitiful. Yeah. At that age, especially four years old. I cried a lot, and I sat by the window and watched my mother. Sometimes, a couple times a week, she would leave work in Philadelphia. She would get on a trolley car go to Midtown Philadelphia and then take a trolley car over to Camden, New Jersey and then walk to the hospital to visit me. And she did that several times a week. And I, when she would leave, I would be heartbroken. You right. know, I always wanted to go. That had to stay with you, right? Like that, to this day? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was very traumatic for me. And uh, I don't know, maybe it's part of me feeling like an outsider of most of my life. There are a whole bunch of things that contributed to me never feeling like I belonged where I was at any time. Mm -hmm. I always felt like the odd man out. And maybe that's helped me as a writer because I observe things better than But you say that, and I have only known you for a short spell, but it seems like everybody's your friend. <laughs> so, so I don't know. You think of that about yourself. Seriously, it seems like you have a lot of friends. Like, you know, uh, at your book uh, uh, release event, there was a lot of people there. <laughs> yeah, we had a good crowd. You know? Well, I, I, think, I think finally at 81 years old that I've uh, – um, 
let go of all the youthful anger I had when I was in my late 30s, and uh, I started living my own life again. And uh, I think I let go of all of the things that were stopping me from being the person I wanted to be. And uh, I think that's when people started recognizing. What was the secret? What's the secret of doing that? The secret <laughs> to doing that was that I realized <coughs> that. Uh, I need to. I need uh, to write I was, this down. I was spending my life angry at my father and authority figures, mm -hmm. uh, and thinking that I'm being a rebel, which is what all the kids in the '50s were, thought they were sure. rebels, uh, rebelling against authority, Catholic school, and you know, uh, military. And basically, what I was doing, I was living my life against something rather than living my own life. Right. I thought that rebelling was like the good thing to do, but right. it prevented me from being me, really. Right. And when, when I realized that in my mid-30s somewhere along the line, I said, wow, it's like a light bulb went off. I shouldn't be doing that. I, this is my life, my turn now. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, within a year or two, I met my wife, we got married, and my whole life changed when that realization happened. I loved your first date. <laughs> <laughs> you went to see Reefer Madness. Midnight You show. were set up. It was a blind date. Yes, yes. Reefer Madness. Uh, the St. Mark's. Midnight. Uh, yeah, that's classic. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone used to bring food in there, so we smell of chicken, popcorn, and you'd smoke a couple doobies while you're there. I don't there. think people today would understand. Like, that's an old, what was that, from the 40s? Yeah. And uh, it, it's anti uh Marijuana. You know, marijuana movie, but it's really funny. But I think it'd be even funnier now because now uh, pot's become uh, fairly accepted in yeah, a lot of. Yeah. I'm sure there's parts of the country where it's not, but you know, pretty soon uh, it's, it's going to be legal to buy it in stores in New York City. But you know? it was a film made by the government, right? That was so out of truth. Uh, it's so funny. It, it became a hilarious movie because right. they were depicting people as being crazy maniacs from right. smoking a marijuana joint. Right, right, right. yeah. So it was a very popular movie in, in the 60s. Right, yeah, well, I remember seeing it too. That's, that's just, when I saw that, that was your first date. I was like, holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so I wrote a few things down I wanted to ask you about. Um, I already asked you about the polio. So the, the wanted, you wanted to be a cowboy. <laughs> yes, I always wanted to be a cowboy. Right, uh, and it's obviously the imagery is right there on the cover of your book. Well, in my heart, I'm still a cowboy. Right, so, and uh, well, I mean, in the fifties, uh, it was such a big deal, like cowboy movies and uh, well, we know, basically culture. Uh, during that time, the Eisenhower era, uh, there was good people and bad people. The communists were bad. The Americans were good. We won World War II. We saved the world. And all the cowboys in cowboy movies always wore white uniforms and the bad guys wore black uniforms. Right. And you were always instructed in every movie there was a script about how you were supposed to behave right. as a person, to be a good person. Right. And I, I, like a lot of other kids, I guess, were kind of brainwashed into that code of ethics, those values that are all good, basically. Mm -hmm. right. But we were you know, repeating and repeating and repeating. And all the books I read uh, all had that same cowboy mentality of uh, you know being honorable person and there's a whole code of cowboy ethics and uh, when I came in collision with what I was expected to do in Catholic school uh, I chose the cowboy way rather than the Catholic school way which is right <laughs> when I gave up religion. but the, but, but the, the the cowboy that wore the black <laughs> <laughs> well Hopalong Cassidy wore black but he was a good guy <laughs> right right I remember <laughs> Hopalong Cassidy Talk about a little bit about, um, uh, so I 
So you were a, a hall monitor. I, I, I love that, that image of uh, being a hall monitor. <laughs> Talk about that. Well, we had the safety patrol in uh, elementary school. Um, public schools had the Keystone Safety Patrol where you wear a belt that was like military-looking white canvas belt with a big badge over your chest. And in Catholic schools, they had the uh, American Automobile Association provided just badges that looked like police badges that you wore. And basically, as a safety patrol person, you were supposed to uh, stand at corners as a crossing guard with the, the people are hired and paid to do that. Now, we were doing it for nothing. And then uh, you were hall monitors, make sure kids got to their classes on time. And, you know, always looking for attention and approval. Uh, I thought I was like a big deal. I'm mm -hmm. like safety patrol. I got promoted to lieutenant and then I got promoted to captain. I thought I was really hot stuff, you know. Uh, yeah. When I went to Catholic school, they made me a lieutenant because of my prior experience. <laughs> so the military thing, the cowboy thing, then, and then you wound up in the Navy. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's sadly I didn't choose the Navy out of uh, patriotism. Right. I grew up near near the Philadelphia Navy Yard, very close to it. All the streets in our neighborhood were named after uh, naval heroes, and I always saw sailors with those really cool-looking thirteen-button uniforms, and had the hats slapped on the back of their heads, and they always had a pretty girl on their arm. And I said, honestly, I'm I'm going to wear that uniform, and I'm going to get laid. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of you know, a lot of what people do, and men especially in, in their life, is based on that, uh, including you know, being in a rock band, uh, exactly. <laughs> which I did. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so in in the late fifties, we said you joined the Navy, uh, and this was at the beginning of the Cold War, right? In the early days, but then you wound up on the USS Independence, right? Right. That was the first ship I was. Oh, on. okay, yeah, and then and then you went to Palermo Submarine School, and you went f uh, in two years. You went from fireman apprentice to petty officer, second class uh, right. sonar man. You were patrolling the waters off of Russia right. during at that point. Now it's really deep into the Cold War. Right. Yeah. What was that? What yeah. was that like? It was uh, very scary, actually, because we had the Cuban Missile Crisis, right. in which we were on high alert. We actually had, you know, atomic warheads on our missiles, and we had targets. Each submarine, there was five of us out there, at rotating shifts, and our missiles at that time were only had 1,100 mile range, and our targets were <laughs> some of them were pretty deep inside Russia, so. In some patrols, we were practically sitting on the beach you know, really in, close. Order, in order to make right. the targets. And we were always operating in the middle of the Russian fishing fleet, which was a fake fishing fleet because about a third of the boats had torpedo tubes on oh, them. Nice. Torpedoes. Was it Was it terrifying to some degree? No, I thought it was exciting. Was when it? When you're 19 years old. Right. And you're, you know, you, so you weren't really thinking about no, not at what all. could go wrong. Not, <laughs> and honestly, you know, when they were saying that, you know, Russia's bringing missiles over to Cuba and they're talking about bombing Florida, my head was, well, let's nuke those bastards right. before they get us, you know. Because I was just about to ask you before you said that, um, you're on a ship and you're doing your job. I was wondering how much of, like, the outside noise of the Cold War made it to you. And, no. and well, uh, we had uh, a daily newspaper that was supposedly news of what was going on in the world. Because once, once a day, they would um, put up an antenna, of what's called the floating antenna, and the submarine would have to come up to periscope depth in the North Atlantic in the wintertime, which is an adventure, 50-foot waves. And then uh, they would receive radio signals with news and messages and new order changes or whatever. 
and the radio men would type up the newspaper every day, and some of us, including me and my good friend Don Ulmer, would write stories for the newspaper every day. I, that, I was writing fiction stories right. for the newspaper. Right. But uh, the radio men uh, had a knack for distorting um, baseball, football, and sports scores to suit the teams that they liked, so that <laughs> they always came out winners. Right. And, and, okay. then, and then just for fun, they, right. they would print stories like, uh, when John Glenn went off into space, they said that uh, he never came back, and that the last words were, "There's no toilet paper." Wow! You know that that, that <laughs> was one. Day. And then another another story they told us was that Joe DiMaggio killed Marilyn Monroe with a Louisville Slugger bat. Whoa! And, and we believed these things because right, we had right. the, you know yeah we had no way of knowing. Sure. Nowhere. How could you? So the, the radio men always right. made fun with us with right. stuff like that. <coughs> so yeah, so high school you you had the acting bug, uh, and also. No, high school I was writing. writing. Started yeah. writing. Uh, yeah. When did you start acting? Well, uh, when I was in the Navy, I uh, was drinking a lot. I had started drinking when I was 14 years old. And uh, the weapons officer in our ship and I became friends because we wrote, both wrote for the ship's newspaper. And we stood watches together and used to discuss writers that we liked. I favored 50s beat era writers and he favored 40. Hemingway and you know mm -hmm. the 40s right, writers, sure. so we were always arguing and discussing that, and uh, and then on my last patrol, he uh, he said, you know, do you ever think about doing anything other than being drunk when you're not working? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I haven't really given it a lot of right, thought. Right. So uh, he said, you know, my wife runs the uh, the theater on the sub base there, and they're always looking for people to do extras and help out down there. He said, would you be any interested in doing that? So I said, actors and stuff? He mm -hmm. said, yeah. I said, yeah, I'll do that, yeah. So I went down there. Uh, he told his wife I was coming down, and she interviewed me, and the first thing she said was, you smell like you've been drinking, and you act like you've been drinking, so don't come back unless you're not drinking. So that was a wake-up call. No right. one had ever said that to right. me before. In the Navy, you know, if you were expected. If you were out drinking all night, as long as you did your job, nobody cared. But well, didn't they have, uh, like, rum rations? No, that's a British Navy. Oh, okay. British Navy. But I thought there was something that, that you had mentioned. Well, we, uh, I was a sonar man, so right. sonar men were allotted one gallon every patrol of 150 proof uh, alcohol to clean our equipment. Oh. So out of that, the equipment never got cleaned <laughs> with the alcohol. We would allocate a half a gallon for our use during the patrol, and the other half a gallon we would... Uh, barter with other people in other departments, either for porn magazines or for um, canned crab meat or canned lobster meat or delicacies that we, you know, were in demand. So that's what we did with that. And uh, our cooks used to have a st still under the deep fat fryers. They used hmm. to use, get uh, the fermented uh, dried vegetables and fruits that we used to have. Ah, okay. And there was always a couple of chiefs on the boat who had a bottle of something that would come out every now and then. So um, this is a storytelling on Orchard Street, and you're a great storyteller. We've already blown through <laughs> pretty much the whole show. Um, do you want to read one more thing from you from right. from the new book? All right. Before we from hit the, the road. New book. Oh. I don't, I don't actually have anything from the new book. I'll read something. All right. Anything? You have a favorite you'd like to hear? Uh, well, how long do we have? We got four minutes. <laughs> we, uh, we should wrap up with a few. All right, a few minutes. The dance. Pick a short one. The dance king. All right. I'm 15. I get a job setting pins at Stony Creek Bowling Alley. 
I work lead nights and Saturdays. I get 11 cents a game, 22 cents when I set doubles. I ride to work on the back of my friend Donnie's 48 Harley. On paydays, we chip in and get a couple bucks to an old wino who works with us and he buys us wine. He gets a, a gallon for himself and a gallon of apple wine for us. We get drunk before every dance we go to on Friday nights. I'm a really good fast dancer, what we used to call jitterbugging. I enter dance contests all over Delaware County, and I never lose. When you go to a dance contest outside your own neighborhood and you win the contest, you generally get beat up by the locals for winning, unless you bring along protection. I always bring guys along from my neighborhood. I fill them up with apple wine, while everyone's standing in a circle watching the dance contest, my guys go through the girls' purses left on the metal folding chairs along the wall, and they take their money. That's their vig for covering my ass. That's what life was like for bad boys then. <laughs> you know the movie Wedding Crashers? Yeah. They got the idea from, from you. Oh, yeah. I, I, I <laughs> there's a, a, a section in the, in the book about uh, you and your friends crashing weddings. Two seasons in a row, yeah. 56 and 57, we were crashing weddings. And somehow you managed to, to never get caught? No. That's no, awesome. We were smooth. <laughs> we were smooth. I'm going to read one of yours. Okay, good. Um, you, um, I had the distinct pleasure to be able to read uh, on stage during your book release uh, event. And um, I, this is one of the ones I chose, one of the three. I really like this one. It's called uh, Colored Easter Chicks. Mom buys us four dyed Easter chicks at Woolworths, baby blue, pink, deep purple, and uh, canary yellow. We house them in a small cardboard box in the kitchen with sawdust on the bottom and a light clip to the box to keep them warm in our cold kitchen. We love these chicks. We feed them and care for them until they grow so large they have to put them in a big empty Scott's toilet paper box, which stands about three feet high and three feet square. The chicks are rapidly becoming chickens and are healthy and loud. One morning, we come down for breakfast to find that rats have chewed holes in the box, killed the chickens, dismembered them, and eaten pieces of them. There are body parts, blood, and feathers strewn across the kitchen. My sister Doris and I are hysterical. It's going to take years to overcome that trauma. And I think you told me that you really never fully overcame that. Well, there's two or three other rat stories in the book. I've noticed that. And, and one, one of the things I was told by... Madeline Ortenberg, who's an extraordinary editor, mm -hmm. she edited the book, and she said, those rat stories are creepy. Do you have to use all of them in there? Can't you just <laughs> take a few out? And I said, that was my life then. Everybody that I grew up with, rats were part of our sure. life. And, you know, the, we were, they were, you know, like you have a cat and dog, we had rats. Well, know? it's New York City. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's plenty of rats uh, probably flitting around somewhere out there, too. <laughs> yeah, to ignore the rats in my life would have been uh, right. impossible. Right. Any, uh, any final thoughts? I mean, this went really quick. I'm probably going to have to have you on again. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for having me, Pete. You're the best, man. You're a great storyteller <laughs> and easy guy to get, a, to, to get to know and a fun guy to be around. I'm uh, at a stage of my life where fun and romance are my objects. You know, there's no, I don't Good have any you, pressure man. on myself. <laughs> I don't want uh, to change the world. I'm not going to get rich. So I'm just out to travel a little bit, have a good time, and try and... Keep happy. I get the sense that you're achieving all that too. You seem I to am. be really making the, mo the most of life. And some uh, of the happiest days of my life. Awesome, that's good for you. Yeah. So this has been uh, storytelling on Orchard Street. My guest, Philip Giambri. Thank you, Philip. Appreciate it. Check out his books. They're on Amazon.
and they're fantastic. Thank you, Philip, again, and uh, thank you all for listening, and uh, bye-bye. <laughs>